morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. My name is Pastor Stephan DeWitt. It's great to be with you today. Uh, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We'll also be projecting the words up here if you prefer that method. Luke 2, it's on page 1,459. Luke 2 is um, the most detailed and the best loved version of the story of the birth of Jesus. And the sermon um, that I'm going to preach this morning... I'm really going to focus on the first seven verses. We're going to read 14 verses, but we're really going to focus on the first seven verses. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Listen to God's word. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. This is the word of the Lord. A while back, I came across a scholar, a historian, Alexandra or Alexander Shia, who is an expert in first century. Jewish, Jewish Christian history. And Alexander Shia was saying that when it comes to interpreting Luke chapter 2, it's really important for us to put these events in a historical context. Um, and he says, one of uh, maybe the most important words in this whole chapter of Luke chapter 2 is those very first words, in those days. In those days. And Shia says that every responsible reader of Scripture, when they read that, they should think, in what days? What does that mean, in those days? What was happening in those days? Uh, I think it's worth noting, the Gospel of Luke was actually written around 80 AD, 80 AD. So like two generations after all of these things happened. 
So when Luke, when the gospel writer was, uh, was a very old man, he pieced together this gospel. He was writing about things that happened when he was an infant or maybe even more likely not even born yet. So when Luke wrote about these things, a good amount of time had already passed. Luke was reflecting on a bygone era. In fact, like a modern equivalent might be like if someone today, someone in their 90s today, wrote a book about what it was like to grow up during World War II. Like that's a long time ago. That's a modern equivalent. That's approximately the same amount of time that had passed between Jesus' birth and the time that the Gospel of Luke was written. So Alexander Shia goes on to explain, we need to know what Luke is talking about when he says those days. You know, in those days. Those days that Luke is referring to were very dark days. Very dark days. And in the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, there are two major actions that change the course of history. And Luke, the gospel writer, is inviting us to compare those two major actions. There are two major actions in the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2 that change the course of history. The first major act is this. In those days... Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. At the time that this was written, Caesar Augustus was probably the the most powerful man who had ever lived in all of history. He had more control over more of the world than probably anyone who ever came before him. And then on top of that, he was a very, very terrible man. By any account, he was a terrible man. Caesar Augustus considered himself to be nothing short of a god. He saw himself in his judgment as the ultimate power and authority in the universe, and he showed that he had no hesitations getting rid of anyone or anything that stood in the way of his power. And he frequently, over the course of his life, ordered the death of entire populations, ordered the death of entire people groups, even entire sections of his own family who he thought were a threat to his power. Caesar Augustus was a murderer's murderer. He was a narcissist's narcissist. He was a terrible, terrible man. And in those days, Luke says, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Why would he do that? Historians say there's a couple different reasons. For one... Uh, Augustus was a genius, and he was looking for information. He wanted to know who his people were. He wanted to know who his subjects were so that he could rule them uh, even better, have even uh, even more control over them. He wanted to know how many people he ruled, for what reason those people lived, and how he could best tax them. But then also, historians say, even more than that, this census was a power flex. 
It was a power flex. Caesar Augustus wanted to command the whole world with his words. It was his way of getting everybody to fall in line. It was his way of getting everybody to do what he told them to do. It was an exercise in obedience. It was an exercise in direction following. It was an exercise in worldwide submission to the greatest, most powerful man who had ever lived. It was an exercise in showing everyone all over the world, that they did not belong to themselves, they did not belong to their people groups, they did not belong to the respective nations or ethnicities, but they belonged to him. It was a power flex. In those days, Luke says, in those days. So like I said, In the first seven verses of Luke chapter 2, there are two major actions that change the the course of history. And Luke, the gospel writer, is asking us to compare them. The first one is that Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And the second is that while they were still there, the time came for a baby to be. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn. It was a boy. And Luke is saying, go ahead, compare those two things. One is huge, even on a global scale, where the world's most powerful man reinforces his grip on all government and all power, and one is so small that only a few animals took notice. One involves globally coordinated logistics like the world had never seen before, bringing about the consolidation of power for an autocratic narcissist, and the other on the surface, at least, looked like an accidental pregnancy. Let me tell you a story. On October 17, 1956, in New York City, there was a chess match that many experts claim is one of the most remarkable chess matches in all of history. It was a match between Donald Byrne, who is a professor at Penn State University and an international chess master, and a 13-year-old boy named Bobby Fischer. Donald Byrne was one of the most respected chess players in the world, He was a total professional. He made a point of being the best-dressed person in every room that he walked into. And when he played chess, he wore his glasses right on the tip of his nose and held a long cigarette between his fingers, which tended to intimidate his opponents. Bobby Fischer showed up in a T-shirt. Most people had never heard of the boy before and wondered what on earth he was doing in this chess tournament. So the match begins. And they're not long into it. They're just a few moves into it. And Bobby Fischer makes a foolish move. 
on his 17th move, he moves his bishop way to the edge of the board. So his bishop really can only move in one or two different directions. And he leaves a clear path to his queen, leaving his queen totally exposed, giving Donald Byrne a very clear shot to take his queen. Well, if you know anything about chess... Um, to give up your queen at such an early point in the chess match would just make absolutely no sense. So when Byrne takes Fisher's queen, everyone kind of gasps because this match is already over. And so a crowd begins to gather around because they're thinking, in the same way that a crowd would gather around a car accident, we're going to watch this chess master teach this little boy a lesson. But then... As the game progresses, to everyone's amazement, Fisher starts to chase Burns King. Check. 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 And just 13 moves later, the little boy says, checkmate. And it was pin drop silent in that room. Now, Decades later, uh, this is 2015, there's a, there's a chess historian named Frederick Friedel, and he has made it his life's work to catalog, to, to document every single match of chess that has ever been played in any major tournament by major chess players. So we're talking about millions of chess matches by, by chess masters over hundreds and hundreds of years. And Friedel says that in hundreds of years of master class chess, no one has ever performed the move that Bobby Fischer performed when he was 13 years old. And he says, that is unheard of. He says, in chess, there's nothing new under the sun. But no one had ever performed the move that Bobby Fischer did. And what's more he says, is that scholars, there are scholars who study, who have written their PhDs on this singular chess match. And these scholars go back and they look at this chess match and they figured out that the moment where Fisher actually secured his victory over Byrne was the moment that he sacrificed his queen. The moment when everyone in the room thought that he had lost was actually the moment when he had won. Appearances can be deceiving. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. In those days, the time came for a baby to be born. And Mary gave birth to her firstborn, who was a boy. No one could have seen it at the time, but the outcome was already inevitable. As humble as it was, as slight as it was, as simple as it was, the outcome was now unstoppable. This was the move that ensured the outcome of the match. 
I wonder, I think about Luke, the gospel writer, 80 or 90 years old, probably too old to write the gospel himself. He was probably dictating to someone else. I wonder how he reflected on those times, in those days. Did he have an idea? I think probably to some extent he did, right? Because he knew the whole story of Jesus. But did he know, even in that day, that the birth of Mary's son would be even bigger and even more important than the census of the great divine Caesar Augustus? We are gathered here this morning, and not just us here this morning, but like Sam said earlier, people are gathered this morning all over the world. Think about that. Think about that. All over the world, people are gathered here and gathered in their places of worship because of the result of one of those two actions in history in Luke chapter 2. One of those two actions had a worldwide, even cosmological, even eternal impact on all of existence, and it had nothing to do with a power grab from a narcissist. In those days, the time came for a baby to be born. That night, the angels told the shepherds something life-altering has happened. Something world-changing has happened. But it's not what you think. Of the two world-altering things that happened today, it's not what you think. It's a boy. It's a child. It's a baby who's born of Mary. And you will find him in the lowliest place in a place where you would never expect to find any glory, in a, and you'll find it with a kind of power that Caesar would never even identify or appreciate. Today we gather to identify and appreciate a kind of power that otherwise we would look past. So we have to stop ourselves. Because if we're not careful, we'll go chasing after Caesar. We're gathered here this morning to stop ourselves and to reorient ourselves and to find out again that the world was changed not because a census was declared, but because a baby was born. And when it happened that day, it went almost entirely unnoticed. Almost entirely unnoticed. Today we recognize that God has made a move, a decisive, powerful, conclusive move, and it went almost entirely unnoticed. In fact, many things that God does go unnoticed, and even still go unnoticed, even by us. And we've even spent the last four weeks or so uh, waiting, right, and watching and hoping for God to come, for God to move, for God to do things, and he sneaks past even when we're looking for him the hardest. Today, we recognize that God has made a move and that he continues to make moves and that the kingdom is still coming. And in his way and in his manner, 
and through his people and by his power, God is still making moves. Even though very often it goes unnoticed. And very often, like it did for Luke, it's best seen in retrospect. So if you're 80 years old today, we need to hear from you. Isn't it just like our God? And isn't it just like Jesus to show up in such a way and at such a time in the shadow of so much oppression to bring hope to such a people in those days and in these days? Pray with me. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for shaking this cosmos, even though the cosmos did not detect it. We thank you for this yearly reminder of the way that you come and how you come and to whom you come and through whom you come. We pray today that we would be those kind of people, Lord, that you would come to us and come through us and come around us. With great hope in your power, we pray. Amen.